The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. And speaking of welcome back, I just was in the uh, Cayman Islands on the island of Grand. Uh, I'm saying it wrong. You know, it's not Cayman. Did you know it's Cayman? Like, hey, man. <laughs> really? So when you're used to saying Cayman your whole life, it's like um, Grand Cayman. You have to stop. Anyway, I was in Grand Cayman. Beautiful island, beautiful water, beautiful weather, except the humidity. Uh, you see me in hats post pictures often because my hair is kind of like out to here and crazy. Um, I did get tan, but uh, I'm such a white girl, it faded. Uh, I mean, it faded fast. That's the part Irish in me, I think. Uh, certainly not the uh, part Sicilian. Um, anyway, it is good to be back. It is uh, good to be back from vacation. I'm lying. I really could use a few more days, to be honest, just to sleep more. <laughs> and also, my husband always says, come back on Saturday so we have Sunday to regroup. And I'm like, nah. So we get back late Sunday night. And I should have done what he said, but <laughs> I wanted one more day of vacation. Anyway, glad to be back with all of you, especially working here with Marky Mark. And let's start it off and kick it off by checking what's ripped. <laughs> Millions of Americans could face massive consequences unless Speaker Kevin McCarthy can navigate out of a debt trap that he has set for President Joe Biden that is instead threatening to capture his House Republicans. The California Republican traveled to Wall Street uh, yesterday to deliver a fresh warning that the House GOP majority will refuse to lift a cap on government borrowing unless the president agrees to spending cuts that would effectively neutralize the domestic agenda and neuter his White House legacy. Legacy, excuse me. Uh, McCarthy also assured traders, however, that he would never let the U.S. government default on its obligations a potential disaster that could halt Social Security payments, trigger a recession, and unleash job cuts by the fall in the event the, de the debt ceiling is not raised. Now, listen, voters, you know, it's the economy, 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 it's the economy, stupid, right? It is. And Republicans, for some reason, do this often and end up getting blamed when they do this. So why they keep repeating these stupid patterns, you really, as a as a politician, you need to care about the best interest of your constituents and your nation, not just your party. And this is clearly party politics. Every single thing they're doing is politically motivated lately. And that is, uh, this is where uh, the risk to we Americans comes in, guys, right? Because it's hard to see how a rookie speaker with a tiny majority and a conference containing plenty of extremists can engineer either of these outcomes. Most countries don't require the legislature to raise the government's borrowing threshold. But the quirky situation in the U.S. has made a once routine duty and opportunity for political mischief in an age so polarized as we're living in. So since the government spends more than it makes in revenue, it must borrow money to service its debt and pay for spending that Congress has already authorized. Now, understand, this has already been authorized to be spent, to be paid. It is no problem getting more credit since we pay our bills and have always had a stellar credit rating and the world needs us, despite one previous downgrade from a threat of default. So 
That is how it's worked pretty much until now. So McCarthy besieged his conference in a closed door meeting today to line up behind a bill that would raise the debt limit for a year, but require a flurry of spending concessions from the president. So he's trying to deflect and put it on the president. But, you know, I'm sorry, as a Democrat, we're going to put it right back on Republicans if they do this. And, and you may say that's playing politics. But do we have a choice to lie to the American people? No, we got to tell the American people the truth. And it is Republicans doing this. He styled this measure as an initial way of forcing the president to the negotiating table. But the bill is purely tactical since it's got no chance of passing the Senate, which is led by Democrats. And by the way, the president has said time and time again he would sit down with the speaker. So saying the president won't come to the negotiating table is just bumpkiss. In a sign of how difficult it's going to be for Kevin McCarthy to even pull this gambit off, there were signs of internal disagreement on what should be in the package, even among the GOP. And that's when I get my popcorn. Scott Perry, who's the chairman of the Hardline House Freedom Caucus, was frustrated about the lack of specificity in the plan and wanted steeper cuts. Uh, that's what he told. Uh, you know, and then also conservative Tim Burchett, uh, Congressman Tim Burchett, told CNN's Manu Raju, I'm open to it, but I'm still a no vote. So we don't have anything that is 100 percent across the table, across the aisle. Republicans are yet to even agree to their own demands, and they may have less leverage than they think. So McCarthy, he needs to reverse the blame equation because right now Republicans are going to be blamed. And I think even that reversal will end up falling in Republicans' laps. Let's rip another. Online yesterday, very excited to see Senator John Fetterman, Democrat from Pennsylvania, return to the Senate. This is two months after he checked himself into Walter Reed Medical Center, where he was treated for clinical depression. Look, I can't imagine what it would be like to run for all. I know how stressful my life is. And seriously, there are days, guys, I just want to like run away from home. You know what I'm saying? You, know, you feel me? You feel me? Especially, especially, sorry, guys, especially women who we do it all, right? We should never have agreed to do it all. <laughs> you know, like you work, you do everything with us, everything with the kids, uh, you know, everything with businesses, everything with the husband. Husband goes to work, great. You know, but woo. Uh, anyway, um, I can't imagine the stress of running for the Senate and running for the Senate uh, when you're John Fetterman, you know, when you're the odd guy out and uh, when you're not favored to win. And then you have a medical situation like a stroke. That in itself, just that alone is so stressful. I, 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 who wouldn't get depressed? Who would not get depressed over that? And not just that, but the way some in this world, our nation, shamefully reacted to another person kicking them truly when they are down all over the place. Radio, television, articles in the chamber itself. In, down the hall next door to his office, right? No wonder he was uh, depressed. So he did the right thing, the responsible thing as a father and, and a husband and a senator, because he is all three of those. He said, look, I need help. So here's the big picture. Congress reconvened yesterday after a two-week recess. Uh, Fetterman, as well as Senator Fetterman, as well as Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, who was out sick. I didn't hear any Democrats, unless I missed it, wishing McConnell... Uh, harm or mocking his in, his illness. And they were both absent for illnesses. Anyway, Democrats have grappled with the impact of Senator Dianne Feinstein from my state here in California and her absence, uh, because we do have a slim majority uh, and she is uh, much older, right? McConnell returned yesterday 
uh, more than a month. He was hospitalized. He fell at a fundraising dinner. No making fun of him like people did Hillary Clinton, Hillary Rodham Clinton. No making fun of him uh, like Senator uh, Fetterman. Feinstein is recovering from shingles. Uh, it's been facing pressure to resign because there are concerns that her absence is hampering the ability of Democrats in the Senate to advance judicial nominations. Driving the news, well, Fetterman said it's great to be back. He told reporters this when he returned to the chamber yesterday. Uh, he was discharged from the hospital on March 31st, returned to his home in Braddock, Pennsylvania. He indicated last month he would be back in the Senate on April 17th when the chamber returned from recess, so he's right on time. And he said in a statement after his release that he was extremely grateful to the incredible team at the medical center. He said the care they provided changed my life. Another thing to note, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, said last week that Democrats would try to temporarily replace Feinstein on the Judiciary Committee as she continues to recover. And uh, uh, Congressman Ro Khanna, a friend of the show here and a person I like and know personally, he's calling for her to resign and to be replaced or to be replaced at least temporarily. Let's rip another. Former President Trump and some other potential 2024 candidates are hammering Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over his punitive actions against the Walt Disney Company. Now, why does this matter? Well, the mounting criticism for potential 2024 rivals over his feud with Disney underscores what is becoming a growing attack line against the Florida governor. And driving the news here, the former president announced his 2024 bid last year, wrote on his Truth Social account today, that the Florida governor is being absolutely destroyed by Disney and called the governor's move a political stunt. I agree with Trump on that one. His original PR plan fizzled, so now he's going back with a new one in order to save face. And former New Jersey governor, who's been very vocal and very bravado lately, Governor Chris Christie, and I don't like, he didn't say hi to me on Amtrak. He said during uh, an event today that DeSantis' actions against Disney are not in line with that of a conservative. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines. Part one, we'll be back with part two right after this. Don't go away. We are back. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. Let's get to it and continue what is ripped. On those headlines. We spend our days captivated by people with the most power and the biggest mouths. But it turns out a rising number of Americans want something else. Political independence. Yep. Gallup polling last month fell into the record 49% of Americans, nearly half, see themselves as politically independent. The same as the two majorities put together. By far, the dominant U.S. party is not Democrat or Republican. It's, I'll shop around, thank you. But why does this matter? Well, this trend means rising future challenges to the might and money of the two traditional parties and helps explain how volatile and evenly split our politics are. There's no sign either will ebb anytime soon. Gallup analyst Jeff Jones says a big reason for this change is driven by the younger generation. He said, quote, it was never unusual for younger adults to have higher percentages of independence than older adults. What is unusual is that as Gen X and millennials get older, they're staying independent rather than picking a party as older generations tended to do. I guess I'm an older generation. I was an independent when I was in college and the first time I voted at 18, I was an independent. As I got older um, and in talk radio, I had a boss that told me being an independent makes you look like you're wishy-washy. You're on the fence and got one foot, you know, on one side and one foot on the other. Um, because like, you know, many people, there are issues like, you know, some economic issues or certainly crime where I can be more conservative and I'm very, very liberal on social issues. And I think that's the majority or used to be the majority of voters. But he told me, pick a side. So I read 
the platform. And there are over 600 pages, by the way, uh, for the Democrats and Republicans and civil libertarians. And civil libertarians were different then. They weren't Republicans. They were true civil libertarians. They wouldn't wear an R because they weren't Republicans. They were civil libertarians. Uh, Gene Burns was a great talk show host, was a civil libertarian. I learned a lot from him, asked him a lot of questions. And at the end, and by the way, their platform, I think, was 45 pages long. Um, but at the end, I chose uh, Democrat because that platform was more in line with what I thought and what I believe and what I agreed with. So that's not surprising. That's the younger uh, younger voters. He also points uh, Jones to a mega trend, the disillusionment with the political system, U.S. institutions and the two parties, which are seen as ineffectual, too political and too extreme. So, you know, look, this this polarization is going to lead, I think, maybe not in our lifetime, but I do think the Electoral College will be something people really, truly read about in history books someday, because I do think it will be a true democracy, not a republic, uh, majority rules. We're seeing states already, you know, working that way with legislation, legislation. And if you don't have the Electoral College, well, then somebody who's an independent actually has a chance to win, right? Uh, fun fact here, every election since 2004, except 2012, they saw the White House, Senate, or House flip control. Ansi unsatisfied independent voters, well, they're the reason. Let's rip another. There's an intense and large-scale heat wave that has enveloped large parts of Asia during the past two weeks, breaking long-standing records from India to southern China to Thailand. Stifling heat has set in unusually early this year. Studies show that this part of the world is especially vulnerable to the impacts of heat, extreme heat. China and India alone are home to one-third of the world's population. Now, the link between more frequent and severe heat waves and human-caused climate change is firmly established as formerly low-probability, high-impact events occur occur more frequently. We see that across the board, as I feel like I've been living in Seattle or London, not LA, this winter. Uh, by the numbers, the heat in India has brought temperatures exceeding 40 degrees Celsius. That's 104 degrees Fahrenheit to we Americans that don't know how to do Celsius, right, to numerous locations. Uh, yesterday uh, in India, they had 112.3 degrees. In Prayagraj, in Bangladesh, they also saw temperatures exceeding that 40 uh, center, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, 40 degrees Celsius mark. And with weather historian Maximiliano Herrera warning, it will just get worse. In China, temperatures exceeded 35, which is 95 in multiple provinces. And yesterday, more than 100 weather stations broke their monthly high temperature records. Heats, heat records fell in a dozen of the provinces in China. On April 15th, my daughter's birthday and tax day, and I guess tax day today now because it's uh, it was a weekend, right? Uh, Thailand set its highest temperature on record for any month, marking the first time the country has ever exceeded 45 degrees Celsius. That's 113 degrees Fahrenheit when Tak in the country's northwest rose to 113.7 Fahrenheit. That was on Twitter uh, by Mr. Herrera. Many other locations set all-time records that day. I was in 114 degrees once in Palm Springs with my daughter, and it was so hot that just having your head sticking out of the pool, even though your body was in the cooling pool holding a frozen margarita or daiquiri, wasn't good enough. Harara called this event the worst heat wave in Asian history, given its footprint, severity, and timing encompassing at least a dozen countries. And these events have significant ripple effects. For example, heat waves can curtail daily activities, reduce economic output from limiting outdoor construction work to closing schools because of the lack of air conditioning. In India, the heat wave, it's been deadly. At least 13 people died of stroke just in the past 48 hours while attending a government-sponsored event honoring a revered social worker from Maharashtra. 
I always say that wrong. I apologize. The ceremony was held outdoors with tens of thousands of people packed close together. Typically the hottest part of the year, much of India and Pakistan, later in April and during May, preceding the South Asian monsoon's arrival. When I adopted my son in Pakistan, I was in the backseat of a cab. There was no air conditioning. The windows were open. I could not breathe between the pollution and the heat, the humidity, and I passed out twice. That was June of 20, 2008. My son was born June 28, 2008. So it was July of uh, 2008 because it took me two days to get a visa and to get there. Uh, between the lines here, India and Pakistan saw a more severe April heat wave last year. The current system is affecting a much wider area, though, this year. India also hit by unusual heat during March of this year, making 2023 stand out even more in China. They saw unparalleled heat waves last year. It occurred in the summer. The most recent report from the UN Intergovernmental Plan Pan Panel on Climate Change made clear that every increment of additional warming will worsen climate change effects, including heat waves. Let's rip another. Today, the FDA approved a second Omicron booster from Moderna and Pfizer for people over the age of 65 and immunocompromised individuals. Now, this matters because an additional dose of the bivalent vaccine can help high-risk individuals with waning immunity to COVID. Now, most eligible people who have received a single shot of the uh, vaccine aren't eligible for the second dose. That, that, that's uh, 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 and but the FDA could revise criteria after an expert panel meet to discuss the topic in June. Uh, the decision yesterday means those over 65 can get that second booster, but no sooner than four months after the first. People who have any type of a uh, uh, <coughs> immunological problem in their system may receive the second shot at least two months after they receive their first dose, and additional doses may be administered at the discretion of and at intervals determined by their healthcare provider. At this stage of the pandemic, data supporting simplifying the use of the authorized mRNA uh, bivalent COVID-19 vaccines and the agency, they believe this approach will help encourage future vaccination. And we're looking at especially vulnerable parts of the uh, population because, you know, I'm talking to you here about mostly seniors and immunocompromised individuals. Uh, we're watching a panel at the CDC uh, scheduled to meet tomorrow to discuss that second booster strategy. Uh, and uh, we never got to our, uh, I, I went too long to get to all my eight items. Do we have, we don't have time for uh uh, Trump's greatest hits of COVID misinformation. But uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to give you not misinformation, but information with our guests coming up right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go. We are back. How you doing? When I say we, we are with Mike Fole. He is executive director of Empower Project. They work to get us back to the foundational roots of organizing. Empower Project has assisted groups with relational organizing in rural districts, urban and suburban districts, communities of color, and in multiple languages. More importantly, they partner with progressive organizations and nonprofits and work with leaders already engaged in targeted communities. Relational organizing is about building real power and a movement that is sustainable beyond the next election with organizers who will continue to work and to ensure their communities thrive. Shouldn't we all, right? Their website is empowerproject.us or empowerproject.us and their Twitter handle is at empowerprojus, empower, P-R-O-J-U-S. More than a pleasure to have Mike with us. Mike, thank you for joining us and, and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, want to look at a, a few things as to how organizing and relational organizing is not just a good idea, but it can lead to uh, success. And I think Wisconsin is a great model or could be a good model for that next year in 2024. Um, you know, we look at just 
recently, the turnout for that, you know, Supreme Court seat. And and that race broke records. It broke the previous record uh, that was set for spring elections. And this doesn't even coincide with a presidential primary, right? Turnout surpassed 30 36% of the voting age population. More than 10% of, of the votes were yet to be counted. That means more than 1.7 million people cast ballots in that race this year. That bests the 1.6 million from the 2020 race. Um, and there was a presidential primary in 2020. Uh, turnout that year was 35%. So in the weeks leading up to this election, um, I understand you guys did some things, Empowerment Project. And uh, pl please tell us about this, because my understanding is uh, from our notes, our research, you implemented the largest statewide relational program in that state's history. So talk to us about, one, why Wisconsin, uh, why now, and what that means for people that don't fully understand all this political behind the scenes uh, jargon. Certainly. Yeah. And thanks again for having me. It's great to have the opportunity to explain what this is and what we did. So, uh, yeah, in Wisconsin, we were involved in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race through our PAC there. And we were able to have over 530,000 relational conversations with 300,000 people in the state. Uh, it was way, uh, quite the project, let me tell you. And when we talk about relational organizing, and I think your listeners may just hear this and, and think, well, that's just good organizing. And I think that's absolutely right. And that's basically you're, you're getting people to talk to their friends and family about issues that matter to them. So in Wisconsin, we had, it was conversations around the Supreme Court race and how the Supreme Court race would impact, impact people's normal lives. Uh, the concept of voting for a justice may be uh, kind of weird to people who aren't political insiders like some of us to understand, like, what is that? How is the Supreme Court uh, involved in our day-to-day -day lives? And certainly in Wisconsin, with the Supreme Court balance on the line, where liberals have finally been able to take over for the first time in over 10 years, uh, there was a lot on the line, everything from gerrymandering to the uh, rights to, uh, for women, for health care, uh, for the rights of uh, gay people to be able to be married and have normal lives in the state. There's so much on the line. And being able to have complex conversations with friends and family, especially those who tend not to vote, uh, is, can be really impactful. And we've seen that through the research and through the conversations with our activists of how impactful this can really be. I know that the the you know, in your toolbox, um, tech and training, right? Um, I know that you broke through social circles. You helped organizers share that important information. They did it with friends, they did it with family, uh, but they also do it with people they don't know, obviously, about voting in that state Supreme Court race. And, and like I said earlier, this is a scale never seen before in uh, a Wisconsin statewide election. Um, so what you were talking about with regard to relational conversations is hundreds of thousands of relational conversations over just a few weeks. So we don't want people to, you know, get your recipe, uh, you know, in the magic mix, but so people understand how do you do this is, and, and yeah. you know, is social media, media, largely the way that these conversations start. And if so, for some people, that may seem surprising because social media is also a place where there's so much misinformation and so many non-relational conversations, <laughs> uh, but more, um, you know, vitriolic debates. Yeah, we definitely see relational organizing as a style of organizing that can break through media bubbles. Uh, and it's kind of the last last ways you can have conversations with people uh, in this country, it seems like, where people are going to be in their own separate media bubbles, are going to kind of have their own separate facts. Uh, but there's still ways to have conversations with friends and family, and especially people who don't normally follow politics to explain what's going on. 
And the way that we do relational organizing, again, so we're a nonprofit here at Empower Projects. What we do is we partner with community groups and train them how to do this, as well as run the program ourselves in areas like Wisconsin or Nevada in 2022, uh, trying to get as big as possible using this tactic as much as possible. And the way it works is you just get uh, as many activists, as many supporters, as many volunteers as possible uh, to make lists of their friends and family. And then you talk to them and meet them, meet your friends and family where they are. So maybe you're going to text your best friend, you call your mom, uh, you Facebook message your aunt, whatever it is, uh, social media, real life, whatever it is, you have as many conversations as you can. And it really is about having conversations and being able to listen to people uh, about what issues matter to them and have have conversations about what issues matter to you. And again, all of our research and all of our anecdotal evidence kind of all points to the same thing. And that is this is a, a very impactful way to run this type of uh, campaign outreach that should be done in addition to all the other stuff, TV, rail, radio, mail, all that sort of thing that kind of more targeted based off of lists, and that's all great, uh, but this can also help reach to beyond people who are maybe not on existing voter file lists yet, uh, or existing target universes that uh, campaigns are going after. You can talk to those people as well and be able to bring them in and explain to them why it's important to be involved with uh, with local elections. Yeah, I mean, you know, when somebody who's a, in your family or a friend, coworker, classmate reaches out to you, it does go, as you guys have proved, a lot further than a campaign text from a stranger or some kind of robot, right, using just a, a mailing list. Um, your contact rates are 86% or more. Um, when I first read that, I, my head almost spun around like Linda Bling, the exorcist, really, that's a that's a beyond an achievement itself. And you know, congratulations, and you deserve uh, kudos for that. Um, take a listen, guys, so that you can hear a brief summary of what Empower Project is all about. Why do you believe the things you believe? Research shows the most impactful messengers are our friends and family. That's where organizing empowerment comes in. We help community groups and campaigns engage in something called relational organizing, which lets them leverage the power of their community leaders and volunteers to communicate with friends and family to enact change. By using a three-pronged approach of providing our partners ongoing training, technology, and funding to get off the ground, we've become the largest coalition of its kind in the country, partnering with groups like Black Voters Matter, Rock the Vote, Sunrise Movement, and hundreds more. In 2020, our coalition reached over 1 million voters relationally. We trained 77,000 people from over 1,000 organizations, over half of which were focused in communities of color. And nine different independent scientific studies show this style of communication is incredibly more effective than traditional outreach tactics, and is most impactful in communities of color, youth, and transient populations. This year, we've worked on projects ranging from voter registration drives to environmental advocacy, social justice reform, and combating disinformation. We've even partnered with Wisconsin DHS to increase vaccination rates in Wisconsin. But we have so much more room to grow. With your partnership, we'll be able to expand our support to many more organizations across the country. Um, I want, um, th th that's great, Mike, thank you. Uh, Mike, as executive director, um, two things. One, um, how can people uh, become a part of this and, and help and help to make this grow? Because I, I think it's just, you know, in, incredible. I mean, you have organizations try and get out the vote. You definitely have people, Marky Mark Maldi, our executive producer here, has knocked on doors like so many Americans have. And this is uh, another way and another route because it's really essential that, you know, we and, and even especially the younger voters in the future have a voice um, in the outcome of, of these elections and, and in this process. Um, so how do people, um, you know, get more involved uh, with uh, Empower Project? 
Yeah, so first, anybody, please come to empowerproject.us and, and please uh, reach out to us. If you're involved with an organization or a labor union, uh, or if you're running for office or things like that, reach out. We're able to provide our software and our training to uh, fellow nonprofits for free in the progressive space and at a very affordable price for candidates and kind of hard side uh, county parties and things like that as well. So we really want to try and make this as affordable and accessible to groups as possible. Again, we provide free training, free technology, and in some cases, grant funding to groups to, to be able to do this. Uh, and the other is obviously if there are folks out there willing to help contribute to the process that helps us hire more training staff and more organizing staff to keep this running in some of the states that really need to be uh, doubling down for, for where we can have the biggest impact here in 23-24. Awesome. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about this, how their tools work, what relational organizing is. Um, I kind of touched upon that, but I want to do more of a deep dive. want to talk about 2024. I uh, want to talk about people out there that this organization and Power Project focuses on uh, and more. So stick around. We'll be back with Mike Full, Executive Director of Empower Project, right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away. We are back with Mike Full, <clears throat> excuse me, your Executive Director of Empower Project. Their website, empowerproject.us, Twitter handle at empowerprojus or at powerprojus, P-R-O-J-U-S, after empower. Mike, thank you for holding. Welcome back. I asked you about relational organizing and what it is, and and you told us. I was wondering if there's anything more, you know, because, uh, you know, do an interview, you have quick answers, anything more that you want people to understand with regard to you know, the definition of relational organizing and what it is, or do you feel you pretty much, you know, covered it? Yeah, no, I think it's important to kind of clarify here. When people think about organizing, they're probably used to, as you mentioned, you know, Mark was out doing doors, you said recently, uh, with traditional campaigns, where typically the campaign would give the volunteer or the the field organizer, here's a list of 50 people you need to go try and talk to today, and you go try and knock on those doors. And we still think that uh, as an organization, that's valuable, and, and groups should absolutely do that. But we see relational as a, an additional tool in the toolbox, if you will, to be important to, to be able to win elections. And that's kind of the opposite. And that is you have the volunteer or activists come to your campaign and say, great, these are 50 people I'm willing to talk to about the, the election over the next coming weeks and why it's important to me. And we can really see that as bearing out through the research in, in that it, it allows expanding the electorate to people who typically aren't involved. Um, otherwise, we can certainly create a feedback loop, right, where if we're only talking to people who already vote, then you tend to just uh, perpetuate any uh, any inequities there may be in the system. And especially because the people who tend not to be on the voter file tend to be people of color, people more transient, people uh, younger folks. Uh, we tend to leave those people out of who we're contacting. And then we seem surprised when some of these populations are less likely to vote than others. And that just creates a food feedback loop over time. So we really see relational as a useful mechanism to, to expand the electorate and be able to have conversations with people that typically are left aside. How are you guys hoping to replicate your success in Wisconsin um, in 2024? I would imagine you want to do this on even a larger scale and you want to do it in states other than just Wisconsin. 
Yeah, so we've actually been doing this uh, quite a while. We've been doing it uh, since 2011, actually, and, and have been in 45 states so far, uh, running relational programs, some directly ourselves, like we did in Wisconsin and, and Nevada and some other places. Uh, and then in other cases, just supporting just hundreds and hundreds of organizations on the ground across the country. We really see that as an important way to scale. While we're happy to, to plug holes where we can with our organizing staff and, and fill needed uh, areas in certain communities, uh, we really can't do this alone. And so that's why I was so excited to be working with lots of lots of organizations. So again, big national groups like unions like um, AFT and AFSCME and Carpenters Union uh, to local community groups um, like uh, NextGen, Indivisible, uh, Down Home North Carolina. I mean, again, there's hundreds and hundreds of organizations we work with across the country. Um, trying to get as many progressive organizations as possible adopting this style because we really feel like all of that can add up to uh, having huge wins like we saw in Wisconsin and, and elsewhere. Now, more than half of the organizations that you guys at Empower Project support um, are organizations that are focused on youth or people of color. Why is that so important to you and why is that so important to Empower Project? Yeah, again, uh, not only do I think that's useful just uh, <laughs> for humanity and for uh, for a movement, just having uh, more engagement in the communities that tend to be left out of um, out of government and out of progressive politics uh, and then being able to give them a voice. I think that's very important. And then also just the logistics. Uh, there's plenty of other tactics that are very good at, let's be good at talking to suburban white women and men uh, who are already going to vote anyways. And there's lots of ways to, to get to those folks and have those conversations. And that's important. Let's have those conversations too. Um, but we really like to focus with these community organizations that are talking to people that tend not to be involved in politics to get wrapped in, to have those conversations. But that being said, we've we have seen uh, strong impact in rural uh, conservative areas as well, running relational programs, um, having conversations with people who tend not to be involved in progressive politics because nobody around them is talking to them and having a relational friend or family be able to reach out to them and have conversations and pull them in. We've seen is very effective as well. Um, so we're really trying to just expand uh, and break out of the cycle that as a movement we sometimes have of over-targeting and micro-targeting. We're always talking to the same really good voters over and over through as many methods as possible. And that's great, we should do that too. But the whole point is, can we expand beyond that and break out? Because the areas that we need to start winning this country for legislative races, for obviously the presidential race, uh, we need to be able to expand the footprint of the progressive movement to be able to actually have the wins that we wanna have. It's interesting because what you're talking about is reaching out to people that everybody else has forgotten. And I don't wanna say forgotten, but that they feel forgotten. And maybe that's why those in rural districts, uh, those who are younger, those people of color are like, well, I'm not going to vote. Nobody cares about my vote doesn't matter. Nobody cares about me. Because like you say, yeah, they're all looking at those white college educated suburban housewives or, or, or suburban uh, working women, right? You know, or whatever is the you know, latest uh, voting block uh, that, you know, flips an election, right? Or those independent voters, you know, getting them to, you know, go Democrat or Republican if they're registered as an independent or saying, okay, you're registered as an independent, but we want you to vote, you know, our our way, our side, right? Come to our side. Um, yeah, and I, I think that also just brings up too, again, a lot of the community groups we're working with 
use this tactic beyond just the election. They use this to be able to have just normal conversations year round, sharing information about whatever services their organization provides, connecting them with government services, connecting them with information, and most importantly, listening to those folks in those communities as to what is important to them so that that can create a, a useful feedback loop with those community groups. Um, because that's the other thing that we, we certainly see in, in progressive politics is some of these communities we only talk to every two years, two weeks before election day, we show up and say, hey, come vote for the Democrat. Uh, and that's just that's not that's not a way to to build a, a long term relationship with these communities that tend to need a lot of extra help because of the way the systemic uh, problems are facing and, and kind of keeping some of these communities back. So being able to have year round conversations with them is just so critical. Well, I love what you just said. I mean, it's key key in what you said, building a long term relationship. That's really what anybody running for office, anybody saying, hey, this is a good piece of legislation should be doing because it's not about one and done, right? One election and, you know, the relation. it's not like, oh, thanks for your vote or, you know, thanks for coming to our meeting or joining our, you know, online conversation. It's a relationship you're building. I love that. What would you say to folks who want to spread the word about issues important to them but are hesitant to talk politics with family and friends. We've all seen people have something thrown across the table at Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would say, uh, unfortunately, many of the ways that kind of campaigns think about conversations are memorize these six bullet points and shout them at somebody until they cave. Uh, it turns out that's not how that's not how the real world works. You don't uh, say. And certainly that doesn't work <laughs> in relational organizing, right? Um, so and this is a lot of what we do. And if people are interested, please come to our, our website, empowerproject.us, empowerproject.us. And we're happy to help uh, get people up and running and get trained in how to do this. But really, it comes down to just having real conversations about why you believe the things that you believe. And it's not about trying to convince the other person and yelling talking points at them. And unfortunately, this isn't going to convince your QAnon-loving uh, uncle that that he's wrong and, and kind of pull them back. But you can catch people who maybe aren't thinking about how the way they move through life actually is impacted by politics and be able to explain, you know, maybe you feel this way about the environment or healthcare or things like that and being able to help connect the dots between that issue you care about and the way they're voting or the way they're going to call their senator about a, a bill or something like that. Um, it's just lots of just simple, small conversations that add up over time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I think we have like a minute left. Am I right, Mark? I, I don't want to go too much. I, I want to give you that opportunity. Oh, we don't. We have, a, we have, two, we have two minutes. Uh, well, let me ask you this. What attracted you to Empower Project? You're the executive director. What empowered uh, What empowered you? Uh, what attracted you to join this organization and to become its executive director? Yeah, um, I just was was a uh, organizer, just like so many people. Uh, kind of came up with the other model of here's your targeted list of here's who to go talk to and things like that. Uh, and got involved actually in the Wisconsin recalls back in 2011. Um, and this was sort of just a, a side project that came out of that. Uh, just there were so many activists willing to be helpful and we ran out of doors to send people out to. And was like, well, sure, make a list of friends and family and have conversations. Uh, and, and the activists actually ended up loving that. We started doing some research to show how impactful that was. And over time, we just kind of kept doing it. Uh, it kept just being more and more effective. And uh, over time, we just got approached by some various funders and practitioners in the space saying, hey, this seems to be working. What can we do to make it more effective? And so from there, uh, we created uh, Empower Project as a, just a free nonprofit so that we can get this uh, to as many groups as possible with free training and free technology, in some cases grants, so that as many groups can be using this tactic as possible because we feel like it's just too impactful to be uh, ignoring as a, as a movement. 
Well, we do have 60 seconds less, and I wanted to give you the last 60 seconds to, you know, tell our listeners and our viewers anything that I didn't touch upon or get to ask today. Yeah, again, I think if you're hesitant about whether this is effective or not, just think about how you move through life and the decisions you make on what movie should you see. You might see 100 TV ads about how great a movie is, but if your friend or family member says, hey, that movie's horrible, you're probably not going to go see it. And it's really no different than how you move and make decisions in politics. Uh, so if you're a volunteer out in a campaign and, and they're not running a relational program, tell them to come reach out to us. We're happy to connect them and get them up and running on it. Uh, if you're interested in helping to contribute so we can support our other groups to do this, please reach out to us as well. And we just want to get as many groups doing this as possible. That's awesome. Mike, thank you for being with us today. Uh, Mike Full, Executive Director for Empower Project. Like you said, their website, check it out. Go there. You can find out how to become involved or maybe you'd like to write a check, help them out. Their website is empowerproject.us. That's empowerproject.us. And on Twitter, their handle, follow them there, at empowerprojus. That's at E-M-P-O-W-E-R. P-R-O-J-U-S. Empower P-R-O-J-U-S. I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you for being with us today. Special thanks to our executive producer, Marky Martinelli. 